Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Bianca Garner joins us to talk about her work creating the excellent In Their Own League website and podcast. Our review section returns, as does Darren, as we discuss 1917, Bombshell, Jojo Rabbit, The Gentleman, The Two Popes and everyone's favourite, Cats. Phil Foster also joins us to discuss Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And as Darren is back with us, and he is clearly more committed to watching movies than we are, Darren's Dash returns, which this month includes Marriage Story and Little Women. Last but certainly not least, Steve is back to tell us what is coming to Cineworld Cinemas over the next couple of months. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Welcome to our first month-end show for 2020, or as I like to think of this year, 1984 Part 2. It's a big year for political movies, with being there too in the works as the simpleton president gets re-elected by convincing everyone they're all billionaires thanks to him and Ukraine, while in the UK... (laughs) Plans for an updated version of the film Scandal are scrapped when they realise all the scenarios they could have possibly used have actually happened, and in the words of a former Simpleton Prime Minister, nothing has changed. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. It's a good job we're recording this show tonight, Jeff, as tomorrow millions of sci-fi nerds across the globe will be watching Jean-Luc Picard return to TV in the titular... Picard on Amazon. Make it so, number one, or in our case, Neil. Hi, my name is Neil and I'm here to annoy Jeff. Neil, you've got snuffles there. You're, you're all right, here. <laughs> you've not been eating strange meats in China, have you? Oh, dear. <laughs> Just remember, this weekend is Chinese New Year. So when you go down the chinky, make sure that the person that serves you Next time you go down the Chinese, we don't call them chinkies <laughs> in 2020. No. So do you want to go with that again? No, no, no. I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> no, it's going to get cut. You know that, don't yeah. you? Bloody idiot. Okay, let's move on. There are many things to look forward to this year, and we are once again working with the Stroud Film Festival and have recorded an interview with festival director Andy Friedman for broadcasting next month. Now, we can't say too much about it at this stage, as we are embargoed. Nice to be there for that one, I must admit. However, the festival has a cracking lineup. The aim of the Stroud Festival is to put on films and events which can't be duplicated when you watch them at home. They have achieved that target this year and then some. Listen out next month for a special podcast, which Graham is currently editing, which will give all the details in advance of the start of the Stroud Film Festival. Also, we are pleased to announce that we're going to be involved in the Cheltenham Film Festival coming later in the year. Yes, the At The Flicks team are going to assist in the film selection. So let's hope we can stop Graham from getting those new Mel Gibson films shown in there. Anything you want to add, Neil, about what's coming up this year? Well, we have Graham and me discussing films in a well-balanced and impartial way, and then we have more of Jeff. We have an award season discussion coming up, and with foreign language films very much to the fore. Come on, Parasite. As usual, we'll update you through the year with what's coming up in the cinemas in the UK with our tame Cineworld manager, and hopefully loads of interviews. Graham. 
It's a new year and I'm working hard on making the show sound even better. Listen out in the next few months for new music and better audio. As a team, we are still getting used to our new upgraded microphones and recording equipment. All of this sound improvement is to support plans we have to move into local radio and other radio options. Don't worry, we are not stopping the podcast. All we're doing is providing local radio access to some of our existing podcast content which we are repackaging for radio. Hey guys, we're now content creators. Fantastic. (laughs) On the social media front, Les is now managing our Facebook page and that has driven even more downloads for our shows. Engage Warp Drive. Yep, I've got Les organised. (laughs) I have to admit, even though Jeff is involved, it's going very well for us. Someone else who is having a successful time is Bianca Garner and her website In Their Own League. Recently, we caught up with Bianca, who told us why this fascinating and informative film site was set up and her plans for world domination. Over to Jeff to introduce Bianca, also known as B for short. Hi, and your At The Flicks team are today talking to Bianca Garner. If you don't know Bianca or B for short, B is one of the best and most thoughtful critics on film Twitter. Her insightful reviews of modern films is excellent, but also she has a really good knowledge of older films, which is good for us older guys, because uh, that's what we remember. <laughs> that's all we remember. That's all we remember. <laughs> a really wide range of knowledge, and also has set up in their own league. Now, we'll come to that in a moment. B, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm blushing a bit from your lovely compliment. So, it won't last long. This you. is just a just a one off for you. <laughs> yeah. second, second time, it'll be just yeah, normal, normal, normal Jeff stuff. All fully deserved. Your knowledge is really good. Puts us to shame. You have a really good style. The way you put these things across. Oh, thanks. It's great that my film degree has come into some use finally. <laughs> oh, so you're the one who actually is using their degree. Wow. <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> we were having a discussion on Twitter once. I picked up on something or I said something and I was totally wrong with it. B, put me in my place. Don't you worry, <laughs> but nicely. <laughs> so we're here to talk about In Their Own League. B, I'll hand over to you to tell us what that actually is and where you got the idea from. In Their Own League is a website and a podcast that I set up uh, to promote women in film focusing mostly on female filmmakers. The name of In Their Own League came from the film by Penny Marshall called In a League of Their Own. So it's a play on that, really. Basically thought there's nothing really out there that there are a few sites, but there aren't that many that sort of focus primarily on female filmmakers. So I really just wanted to try something new that was not really been discussed and needed more attention, I found. You must be really annoyed at these award nominations at the moment then. <laughs> uh, annoyed is putting it politely. <laughs> I'm really just disappointed, but I've kind of got used to it. It happens every year, so I don't know what to expect really anymore. I mean, uh, it'd be nice 
to have the Oscars recognizing female filmmakers, but the whole industry that needs to change. It's not just the Oscars or the BAFTAs or any other award, the whole industry. So it's a bigger picture. Yeah. I was particularly disappointed with the BAFTAs. Oscars, I would expect it now. But BAFTA is usually better. It is, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what's happening to the BAFTAs recently. The last few years, they're just copying what all the other awards are doing. And so it should have been more a celebration of British film. We've had some great films this year that have come out, such as The Souvenir, which has been completely ignored. And that came number one in the Sight and Sound poll of the greatest film of, of 2019. And it's by a female filmmaker who happens to be British. Yeah. So I thought that's a huge oversight by the BAFTAs. But like I said, it's a whole issue and it's a massive kind of one. <laughs> that's right. I mean, we're currently over here in Stroud and we were very fortunate to be able to interview the director of the festival last week in preparation for what's coming in March. And I know they got some great female filmmakers coming along to it. So it's just a shame it's not reflected elsewhere. It's a real shame. In their own league. Strong Opinions, which deserves to have. Where can people find it, me? Well, you can find us at www.intheirownleague.com. You can find our podcast on iTunes, all the usual places that you can find podcasts. <laughs> we're, we're, we're there. How long has it been running? Six months now? I think so. <laughs> yeah, and you've made... It feels so much... Longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know that. Tell, tell us about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in such a short space of time, you've accomplished a hell of a lot. The quality of everything mm, I've read yeah. has been really good, very professionally done. I said in a short space of time you've been there, clearly you don't sleep. Is the only way you can achieve this. I don't have a life anymore. Uh, yeah. what's, what's a social life? <laughs> yeah. I'm really impressed with, you seem to have got writers from all over the planet. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh, this is all going to be British people, but you've got people from everywhere. Oh, yeah. We have people in New Zealand, Australia, loads in America. We're taking over Scotland as well. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I might be the only British one. Really? Yeah. (laughs) The only only one based in England that everybody else it's all spread across the world and it's wonderful. We're all brought together by our love for film and it feels so wonderful that we've all connected because of this. And people like, you know, top of my head, Rosa. Yes. Um, oh, yes, I read her stuff. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am so grateful for Rosa. She's so wonderful and she is going to Sundance. She just speaks from the heart. Every time I read her pieces, I feel she brings something very personal to it. She's not just reviewing a film. She's bringing so much into her own background, her own world experience, analysing film and bringing that together. It's a wonderful combination. Alongside all the film watching she does, she's got Mm. a very technical job and four children. She's literally Wonder Woman. I don't know how she does it. She's amazing. She puts me to shame. Uh, You've got to bring all the pieces together. But you've done some great pieces. Uh, the top 50 films of the decade. Got one on the go at the moment about the greatest women of the decade. Yeah. Best actresses and their performances of the decade. So we did a poll and we asked people to give suggestions and then 
we took those and we all voted. And now we have 30 actresses, which were going through their work over the last decade. And it's interesting because there's people on there that you would think, oh, should they be higher? Should they be lower? It's a nice way to celebrate their work and bring attention to lesser known films that they've been in over the decade. What would you say are some of the most underrated films in this area of the last decade? I really feel that not enough people have seen Leaves No Trace. Oh, 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 oh dear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you just, um, yeah. oh, Graham's, one of Graham's favourite films. Deborah Granick. I'm in love with her. I love her work too. I mean, Winter's Bone was amazing. Yes. And, um, yeah. and then she came with Leave No Trace and that was exceptional. It was wonderful. And I wish she'd been nominated Yes, for, for that movie, and she should have been. What films have impressed you so far this year? Well, I just recently watched Portrait of Lady on Fire, which I love. It's beautiful. It's an absolute masterpiece. I loved every second of it. I thought it was absolutely gorgeous. And it's a shame it wasn't put forward at the Oscars. I think it's going to do fine without having that Oscar nomination. Oh, yeah, it's, it's coming uh, to the Stroud Film Festival, so yes, we'll, uh, we'll be getting tickets. We'll, we'll, we'll. Oh, oh, good, good. I hope you see it on the biggest screen possible because it it needs to be seen on a large screen. It's the electric cinema, wooden it's the electric, under edge. It's wooden yeah. under edge. That's not a bad yeah. cinema. It's That's an right. ordinary oh. cinema size, yes. Little independent cinema, but yeah. I like it. Really yeah, they, they, they've got two films there um, in the festival, that one and Marriage Story they're showing as well. Oh, lovely. Going forward, what are your aims for In Their Own League? World domination. Um. <laughs> oh. No, that's oh, that old chestnut. That's, well that's said. standard. <laughs> have, you, have you booked your hideout under a volcano? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe the moon. I don't know. Well, there you uh, go. No, I just would like to have the website continue to grow. I would really like to keep the podcast going it'd be lovely to have a youtube channel um where we talk about film and deconstruct certain scenes because it's great talking on the podcast but i i feel sometimes there's always one voice that doesn't get heard it can become like a huge conversation where everyone's talking over each other so i would like more video essays so people have time to talk about films in their own way I must admit, I like your idea about uh, video essays, bit of an, a radio fan. So I do like those sort of single topic, single voice piece where people just talk about what, and I really like that. I know they work well on YouTube, but you can also just stick your headphones in when you're out for a walk or you're on the tube. They're nice, they're concise. And at the end, I either go, yeah, that was brilliant or that person has no idea what they're talking about. You know, and then you can debate it and there's always something to talk about with movies. I like I like that idea. I like video and audio essays about film. We're not, we're not doing it. We're not doing video. We're not doing video. No, not no, with us. No. We've got a face. We've got faces built for radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not a good idea. <laughs> not if they could see you at the minute, Jeff, there. Yes. <laughs> What, in my Blade Runner 2049 ironically worn T-shirt because I hate that movie. Okay, so for those that came in late, where can they find In Their Own League, B? Well, you can head over to our website, www.intheirownleague.com. You can find us on Twitter at Their League. 
and you can find the podcast in your favorite podcast app of choice. But I mean, it's been an incredible six months. It is a fantastic <laughs> work that you're doing. And as I said, I'm sure you don't sleep. Um, <laughs> it is a great website. I'm just looking at it now, and it really, really is very good. And yeah, there, uh, there we go. You got you got a new follower in Neil. We don't normally let him out, but we will let him loose on your website now. We will be changing a website hopefully in the future. We we would like to bring on an online shop as well, sell some badges, stickers, and stuff because everybody loves that type of thing. That is in their own league. And that was Bianca. Bianca, thank you very much for your time. It is a fantastic site. Check it out. Get those podcasts. Read the articles. They're really in-depth. Putting us to shame. Guys, we've got to raise our game here. Uh, we have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but thank you very much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's a really lovely chat. And we'll catch up in the next six months. <laughs> definitely. Definitely, we definitely yes, will. Thank you. Now, that is a very worthwhile endeavour and well worth checking out. I look forward to discussing The Lighthouse with you, B, and good luck with your plans for world domination. What with the holidays and the end of the year, it's been three months since our last review. At least that's kept Jeff's rantings to a minimum. No, not really. They just haven't been allowed on air. <laughs> Remember his movie awards we had to call? Unfairly. I'd rather not. Instead, let's welcome Darren back to the show. Hi, Darren. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Glad to be back. Yeah, it's been a few months. Yeah, it definitely has. It's, uh, I've still been watching films the entire time, though, so, you know. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> excellent. Let's start the reviews. And let's begin with the year Neil remembers, 1917. In your own time, gentlemen. Must be something big if the channel's here. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion? Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. There's only one way this ends. Last man standing. I'm going back to see my father. We need to keep moving! Come on! I'm going back. We can't possibly make it that way, man. You bloody insane! No, no, no! If you don't get there in time, we will lose 1,600 men. Your brother among them. Good luck. Based on the story told to director Sam Mendes by his grandfather Alfred, who actually fought in World War I, two soldiers are selected for a special mission. They have to cross no man's land to find and warn a British force that is walking into a German trap. The film is seemingly done in one long take as we follow the soldier's journey. Did that novel approach work for you, Darren? It certainly did. I thought this film was amazing. The thing is, when I first heard about this film, I was like intrigued about the whole long take, which sounded like you know a really cool effect. 
But it was more than that because that was like, to me, really vital to telling the story because you spent the entire film with these two chaps on their journey. It made the entire area that we were in just feel so epic. There was this like long shot of them walking through the trenches that just felt absolutely huge. And then when they got into a no man's land, it was just so vast and everything. And you really felt like you were a third person with the two of them. You were with them on this mission and you came really, really involved and you saw all the atrocities. I just thought the film was absolutely amazing. It was so tense as well. But when you get to the end, I felt absolutely drained and exhausted because I felt like I'd been with them every step of the way. I, I thought this film was absolutely magnificent. So it worked for you on both an emotional and a technical level then, Darren? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, what I came for was expecting to be sort of wowed by how, you know, what an achievement it was. But it was their story, their bravery, and, but also they sort of, you know, these two scared kids, who, which was pretty much what they were and what most, you know, soldiers were, being put into, you know, seeing things that, you know, they should never have to see. I mean, there was one bit where they sort of take her in a bunker. There's a body with them and something happens that just makes you just feel no person should have ever had to go through this sort of thing. I thought this, this film was absolutely fabulous. I absolutely agree. I, I've never had to stay sitting in my seat after a film before. I was shattered and very much an emotional journey. I thought it was fantastic. The lighting all had to be, well, pretty much had to be natural. I echo Darren's comments and probably Jeff and Graham's. I'm not sure about Jeff. Maybe maybe Jeff's as well. Being taken no, along just the, Graham. Yeah, being taken along the journey is a brilliant idea. And well done, Sam Mendes, for uh, bringing the story to the screen. It's an emotional roller coaster. The cinematography from Roger Deakins is fantastic as ever. Excellent score by Thomas Newman. Cast was top notch. Everything just. Perfect. I came out of the cinema and I WhatsApped these guys. If there's a better film in 2020, it'll be a good year. There already has been, but we'll talk about <laughs> it. Yeah, oh. we'll get to that. But maybe not one I'll engage with so completely. Yeah, I agree with both Darren and Neil. I was absolutely gripped. The thing for me was I felt like I was the third man yes, in exactly. that team. You know, and the level of peril and dread, it was just brilliantly done. And you thought round the next corner, there could be something really dangerous. But because of the way they shot it, you went round the corner with those guys. So you were totally in the film. I just thought it was brilliant. I also loved... The opening sequence, it was so clever in setting up the entire story in less than five minutes. We meet the two main characters, we understand their mission, and we're off on the journey. No messing about. This is it. Bang. Off you go. Five minutes. We're into the action. So well paced. Two principal actors. So young, so different, but friends that really trust one another. And it was absolutely brilliant. Loved the Thomas Newman score. Loved Mendes's pacing. It was just a masterclass in keeping the audience gripped. He mixed tension with humour, with peril, and moments of humanity and wisdom. And then we're back to the peril and imminent danger. It's just never let up. You're right, it's the peril, isn't it? It's the fact that they are genuinely in danger. It's left to me to bring us all back down to it. Here we go. I'm a huge fan of Sam Mendes' films, but there isn't one really that I haven't liked. But he's a technical filmmaker, not an emotional one. And technically... All three of you are right. Yes, it's a great technically film. Technically fantastic. should w- win the Oscar. Yeah. I'm not convinced on Thomas Newman's score, and Newman's my favourite current living film composer. But, and I upset Phil Foster with this, you know where this is going to go. That third man camera effect 
was like watching a video game. No. And as such, there's no emotion no. in this film at all. It borrows from Paths of Glory, from Hacksaw Ridge, and from The Killing Fields, but it doesn't get the emotion right in those characters. And in fact, when this mission is being set up, you said, Graham, in the first five minutes, yeah. they go in to see Colin Firth. Yeah. I half expected him to say, welcome to Jumanji. Oh, this is, this no, is going to be no, your mission no. for today. I mean, all our grandfathers were in the World War One. yeah? My great-grandfather, great grandfather, yeah. Because you're a younger, younger than you. Yeah. 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 So it's my great-grandfather, yeah. too. And mine. You didn't feel like it was maybe them. Let me tell you a bit of family history, which has been passed down in our family. My great-grandfather spent four years in the trenches, and he said it was the best four years of his life. Our family heirloom, and I kid you not, is a bayonet he took, which is covered in dry German blood now. So when Why we're talking on that, yeah, that, but you yeah, still didn't. sorry, that is actually true. This whole thing. No, it, every time they completed another level and got to the oh, next level of the game, another true. British sort of actor comes on, you know. Your great-granddad would have been from Wales, so it would have yeah. been fantastic it for the rest, of the, yeah. rest of the yeah. British yeah. You know, And then when you reach the final <laughs> level, Benedict Cumberpatch, the ultimate British actor, appears. Technically, it's brilliant, and I agree with all of you, but emotionally, it doesn't cut oh, it. Don't, Darren, don't you're too quiet, me, mate. Don't Go on. give me that. Go on, throw in <laughs> you. I'm sure you don't agree with anything I've just said. Well, all I can say is that, you know, how I felt, I was sort of, at times, terrified there is a moment where he waits where he's all quiet and he gets shot at and i leapt out of my seat i don't it, it was just i know the moment you're talking about exactly because the whole cinema reacted it, it was so emotional the only Jeff. time i flinched in that film was when he cut his hand on the barbed wire oh god i will tell you how involved i got in this film there's a bit where they're, they're trying to get a truck that's stuck in the mud going I was absolutely gripped in the drama of that because he had to do that to basically get to where he was going. And I was absolutely like wanting to help him push push his truck. (laughs) I I felt like shouting at the screen going, come on, everybody, push. push. (laughs) See, for me, that worked as, ah, we've reached the Mark Strong level now. Oh, Oh, we're on to the next level. They were just, it was just so involving. I was so emotional about it. I love the fact that, the film starts off with Schofield resting his head against a tree and ends up with him resting his head against a tree. Mm. It was perfectly circular. And it was just those moments that you thought, oh, this, is, this has been well thought out. I've gone on a journey with these people. I've lived this two hours with these guys. And it was just so well done. Like Neil, I was drained at the end. of impressed me about it as well is that it, it sort of get encapsulates the, the problems that you have with the First World War, like with the officer class and the, the inept leadership. There was a scene where he was talking to uh, Mark, Mark Strong yes. about the mission. And Mark Strong says to him, when you get to him with that message, make sure there's witnesses. Mm, yeah. And it was just like that hint that because some of these officers were so gung-ho and so just sort of about glory and making their own name. There was that implication that if there wasn't witnesses around, that it would get ignored. Stuff like that. And, and also the, the sad thing about it at the end is, you know, when, when he sort of like, you know, go, goes back to sleep and he says circular, the thing is you get the feeling that it's not, re- although he saved that day and that sort of mission, yes. it's not really saved anything, you know, you know, further because the next day 
it's just going to be another drive, another assault, and they've, they've not really changed anything. It's still like another year of war to go. And, and Cumberbatch actually says that. He says, some idiot will tell us to go and attack at dawn. And yeah, yeah that was just so true. I just want to do an interesting, fun film fact. The actor, Dean Charles Chapman, played Tommen Baratheon in Game of Thrones. He's the one that jumped out the window. And uh, Lance Corporal Blake's brother, the actor uh, Richard Madden, played Rob Stark yes. in Game of Thrones. So we had a Lannister and a Stark meet on the battlefield again. Fantastic. <laughs> 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 I like that and, sort of nonsense. Yeah. And with that bombshell, <laughs> thank you, Lance. So you all enjoyed it more than I did. Let's yep. move on to film number two, Jojo Rabbit. Here's Marshal Jojo. You're a top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, <laughs> ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Of course you can. comes to. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. <laughs> You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Heil Hitler. I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. (laughs) Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? Oh, God. Nothing makes sense anymore. Yeah, I know. It's definitely not a good time to be a Nazi. Staying with war, but going from World War One to World War Two, set near the end of that conflict, young Jojo Betzler is your typical fun-loving kid who is about to become a member of the Hitler Youth. Helping him to fit into this unusual environment is his imaginary friend Adolf Hitler, played by the director Taika Waititi. Gradually, however, Jojo learns that being a member of the Nazi party isn't as much of a laugh as he hoped it would be. Graham, does Taika get the balance of comedy and drama right with this unusual piece? I thought he did. I must admit, I was very nervous going into this movie. When I first heard the premise, it's a comedy movie about a 10-year-old boy having Hitler as an imaginary friend and a Jewish girl living in the wall in an upstairs bedroom of his house. For me, the film had one major goal. Get the tone right. Overall, I thought it was brilliantly executed. Uh, The young actor playing Jojo, Roman Griffin Davis, was exceptional. The family dynamic was cleverly constructed. And the young actress, Thomasin McKenzie from Leave No Trace, another brilliant film, who played the Jewish girl, gave the film a heart, but also ramped up the peril. And Scarlett Johansson playing Jojo's sad and troubled mother rounds out the family nicely. I just love the fact that all the Nazis were ridiculous. Sam Rockwell is a, a gay commandant, brood mother for the fatherland and regular listener Paul's dream girl, Rebel Wilson, <laughs> handing out rocket launchers to children and uh, local Stroud boy Alfie Allen reprising his snivelling Reek character from Game of Thrones and finally the always wonderful Stephen Merchant doing a great impression of Ronald Lacey's Nazi from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I just thought the whole thing was great. Coming back to the tone of the movie, I think they got it right. They built the movie slowly, introducing the comic characters quickly, but the more serious 
characters of the mother and Jewish girl were introduced much more slowly and revealed facets of their personality over multiple scenes. The tone of the movie worked for me. I thought it was a remarkable achievement. The horror of anti-Semitism, war and Nazi ideology reduced to objects of ridicule whilst praising family, loyalty and resistance. A piece of visual art, I think it worked. I absolutely love this film. I just loved how surreal and hilarious it, it was in places, how daring it was to, mm. to make a, a comedy about Nazis in this state. I know it's it's got a lot of flack as well for a lot of people. Uh, reviewers were, were saying that this is uh, almost like a, uh, an apologist film for people being Nazis, which if that's what you take from this film, I, I don't know what to say to you because that's not what I got at all. That's like saying the producers is an apologist film, the Nazis. <laughs> a lot of reviewers have been saying that. You know, it's, it's incredible. But, but anyway... There were bits in it where I actually laughed out loud. I mean, a bit where Rebel Wilson uh, putting grenades in um, little Germans' backpacks and saying, go hug an American. <laughs> I, I, just, I just howled at that bit. And, and I, just, I, just, I, I love any film that borders around bad taste. It doesn't go all the way over it, but goes to that stage where you think, oh, this is getting a bit thing. But I loved it. The thing that got me is there's a moment in this film which is probably one of the most shocking, oh my God, sad moments in a film I've seen in ages. I would say for anybody listening that we are going to do a spoiler alert on this because that sequence is definitely going to come up being discussed in a bit of detail in a minute. Yeah. It's where the little lad is sort of walking around and then he's just to the, you see before he does, just to the side of him, you see two feet hanging and but, it's his mother's shoes. Yeah, but, but it's, more than, because, it's, it's more than that, Darren. It's because before that he sees the butterfly and that's very reminiscent of the ending of All Quiet in the Western Front. Mm. So you've got right. this yeah, you've got this moment where this, you know, creature comes into view and it's seen as a creature of peace and possibly of change. And then you look at it and you follow the butterfly, and then as you say Basically his mother who is has been hung or being a, a collaborator or saw something. And and it's just absolutely astounding. It just takes the, the breath out of that scene and, and just changes the whole film. I thought this was a fabulous movie. A lot of interesting things that it rose. It, it, it made me think of what it would be like to be a little lad growing up under the Nazis. It's the indoctrination, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, that's it's something yeah. that they, they didn't have a choice. Uh, you do it or you can die. I mean, I mean, obviously, this was this was a, a real representation of what it was like. This was a very, you know, a satirical view. But to be a little kid, you know, where being in the Hitler Youth would just seem as normal as, say, joining Scouts. the Boy Scout, yeah, yeah. You or know, joining Neil's Golf Club. Kid, but, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I thought this was a really clever film, really daring, and and I absolutely loved it. Lovely bit where they're down on the river and she ties his shoelaces together yeah. and then starts walking away and going, and she just turns to him and goes, Come on, Shitler. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good film. I, I like Taika Waititi. I think he's actually the natural successor to uh, Bill Forsyth. Wow. I think he's got that sort of style yeah. and humor with him. I just don't think the first half of this film went far enough. And I understand what you're all saying. And Darren, I understand what you're saying there about other reviewers. But this wasn't the producers or Harold and Maud, you know, which were really shocking. It refined itself. And I'll give you an example. One of the funniest things in the first half of the film was when they sent them out to get German shepherds and they come back with dogs. <laughs> it wasn't one of the funniest bits. I, I mean, it, it was. wasn't, ex- it was, you know, it was an obvious <laughs> yeah, joke. But, yeah, but it's. 
you know, I would have expected more with the Hitler character. And the reason I'm saying this is because by the time you get to the second half, and for me, the film changes and goes up a gear the moment Stephen Merchant comes in. I think the victor of the film is a victim of being in the 2020s rather than yeah. set in the 1970s, Definitely. 1980s. What you could say back then, and a lot in the producers, is very, very near the mark. Mark, yeah. Espe- uh, Harold and Maud. Harold, Harold and Maud. Harold and Maud is I more love so. that film, but it is very, very, I, yeah. It's like Blazing Saddles. There's no way you could make a film like that nowadays. It just, you know, no matter who the targets of it are. You just can't do that these days. No. Uh, Tarantino gives it a good try, though, doesn't he? Well, people he? are still mm. complaining about this movie now. On this one, I take the criticism. I think you've raised a fair point that you couldn't make what you could make back in the 70s. But I would say that it changes gear for me the moment that Stephen Merchant comes in. Because when Stephen Merchant comes in, you've got the humour of that character and all the Heil Hitlers going yeah, on. Yeah, no, that was great. But you've got an underlying menace, and it's starting to change. And he's arrived because of Scarlett Johansson. Yes, yeah. and, and then that sequence where the butterfly sequence yes. that, that is yeah. just incredible. One of the, I think one of the best. I don't think we'll see many better scenes this year. No. But then even at the end, you get characters like Sam Rockwell's character and what he becomes at the very end. And the German shepherds, you see them fighting. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and the fact that the Americans were just shooting them. Yes. Yeah. Which they did. Yeah. Which they did. Overall, it's really good. I think he's a great director. I think, you know, with his humour, he, he is the natural successor, I think, to Bill Forsyth. And his next film, Next Goal Wins, can't wait to see how he does that mm, Michael absolutely. Fassbender film. Yeah. I think on that one, we're all pretty much agreed then. Moving on, our next film, The Gentleman. I want you to play a game with me, Ray. I don't want to play a game. Oh, please. No. I said play a game with me, Raymond. Right. Lovely. I want you to imagine a character. Your boss, Mickey Pearson. You're too smart to be blackmailing us, Fletcher. Yeah. Sweet Mary Jane is my vice. Your poison, on the other hand, is and always has been the destroyer of worlds. You're out of touch, and I would like you to consider an offer. I am not for sale. The plot begins to thicken. Now, I can't be specific about the heroes and zeros, but our protagonist is a hungry animal. There is a lot of money hanging in the balance. Our antagonist explodes on the scene like a millennial firework and has indirectly started a war. His name is Fahok. It's spelled with a PA, so it sounds like Fahok. Please! Harry Fahok, Kanda Fahok. Please! So you killed someone? No, it was the gravity that killed him. Do you need those phones? Exciting trailer. I'm just listening, laughing at Corin Farrell. Everything he said was hilarious, <laughs> wasn't it? Guy Ritchie returns to the land of lock, stock and two smoking barrels and snatch for his latest movie. Ray, played by Charlie Hunnam, works for career criminal Mickey Pearson, played, as we heard there, by Matthew McConaughey. Now, one night, Ray has a visit from a sleazy journalist called Fletcher, played by Hugh Grant, marvellous, who has a complicated story and plan to get a great deal of money from Ray and Mickey. But is everything as it seems? Neil, 
did you enjoy spending time with the gentleman? Oh, yes, very much. It's it's not overcomplicated, and perhaps I should have opted for another film for my father-daughter New Year movie. <laughs> but it's done now. Maybe she'll talk to me soon. Hugh Grant's renaissance since Paddington 2 and probably before that has been spectacular, and he really doesn't disappoint. I don't think if there hadn't been a Hugh Grant in there... I don't think this film would have worked. And Colin Farrell is hilarious. Everything else just seemed to work, but those two were just raised it way above where it reasonably should expect to be, I think. I like the way Guy Ritchie pared the film down to the main characters and kept it simple. Charlie Hunnam and uh, Hugh Grant as narrators and each outdoing each other and trying to stay ahead of the game was fantastic. And Guy Ritchie doing what Guy Ritchie does, and I think it's one of his best. I thought this film was obnoxious. <laughs> it is, yes. You're, yeah. you're taking my role, Darren, uh, aren't no, you? No, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's The swearing is, is, is way over the top. Really? Was there swearing in it? I didn't notice. <laughs> I, I hate to use this cliche, because it's one of those things that people always say when we're trying to be clever about something, but this really felt like Guy Richard doing a parody of himself. I just hated the dialogue, these, like, you know, really corny, cockney speeches. They didn't feel like they were having conversations. They felt like they were having speeches the whole time. And I think what, what got to me about this film is there was no one I could really root for. But even in his uh, other gangster films, which I actually incidentally really look like, you know, I can look stuck into Smoking Barrels, for example, but there's characters that you're rooting for who aren't as bad, even though they're villains, they're not as bad as the others. But to me in this, everyone just seemed as bad as each other. At the start, it just felt like he was trying to be really, really clever. I just absolutely didn't enjoy this film at all. And I say that, there were some bits I did like. There were some really, really funny moments. Most of them with Charlie Hunnam and Colin Farrell, all the bits I enjoyed with those two, if it had been like a double act of those two working together for most of the film, I might have actually liked it more because their bits were really good. But the rest of it, um, I did like the ending when all the sort of different plot lines started coming together and all the twists and everything. But there was something that annoyed me and it's that it did kind of, I, I guess it was like a homage, but to me it felt, also felt like a rip-off. Of the of the ending to Long Good Friday. Yeah, there, yeah, there is yeah, a definite homage that, yeah. in that. Yes, that's that's yeah, correct. And, and and to, if I'd enjoyed the film, I probably would have liked that. But it, it just got it just it just really annoyed me. I I didn't like this film at all. Maybe, maybe it's the Northerner in me. But I've got a sort of <laughs> bias against London gangsters and stuff. But uh, and Londoners, Darren. Londoners. Uh, well, Londoners, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, we've got one year. I and, am uh, we, from yeah. London, so uh, I have an excuse, I'm, I'm I interested. I'm interested in what you're saying about the characters and nobody to root for. What about Colin Farrell? Yeah, because exactly. he's the sort of innocent that's brought into this. He doesn't want to be part of it. But he wasn't really the focus of the film. If he'd have been like the, you know, the central character, I probably would have had somebody to root for. I just couldn't get into it, to be honest. Okay, interesting point. Graham? I loved it. I thought it was rude, funny, clever, violent, fast-paced. I did like the Mockney gangsters, you know, with all the the East End speech. I, I did think it was a wee bit of a, a Guy Ritchie greatest hits film, put all his best bits into it. But what a team he put together. McConaughey, uh, Charlie Hunnam, uh, and for change, a woman in the cast, Michelle Dockery, is it? who is as funny and foul-mouthed as any of the boys in the movie. Colin Farrell was standout for me, and Charlie Hunnam. And Hugh Grant as a detestable slime ball 
he's got a enough acting talent to carry a whole film on his own. I loved it. And, and the fact that it actually works as a coherent movie with all of that ego in there it was quite an achievement for a Richie. Um, I did like it. I thought the costume design for Colin Farrell's clothes <laughs> was so terrible. They were brilliant. I mean, his clothes were so hideous. They actually physically hurt my eyes when I looked at him. It was brilliant. I mean, whoever dressed him really knew how to do bad East End boy. I didn't take it seriously at all. I just thought this will be a Guy Ritchie thing but and just fair, let it wash over me. It's a fair comment. There isn't anybody to root for, really, is No, because you had the, in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, you had the Jason Statham character who was sort of the underdog well, and he was being in, cheated in, at in, cards. In, in and Lock, all. Stock, it was all of them because yes. the people that were above him were far nastier. Yeah. 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 For me, Guy Ritchie has put a screenplay together that takes in a lot of his prejudice and a lot of things he doesn't like about Britain. Although I've got to wonder what he's got against pigs with, with the use of him in Snatch and the use of a pig in this. We were both quite unsettling, to be honest. He, he was channeling his inner Madonna being upset well, with uh, Ramblers, wasn't he? That one The point. Ramblers, pre- he hates press as much as you, Grant. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and Grant clearly reveled in that foul and horrible performance there's a thing he says to Charlie Hunnam when Charlie Hunnam says he's going to go to bed. And I'm thinking, did I just hear that correctly? <laughs> I see why this has got an 18 certificate. But I see what Darren's saying when he says it sounded like they were reciting speeches yes. because the dialogue is so sharp and so precise. It it almost doesn't sound it's not, real. Uh, chat, it's not talking, is it? Yeah, it's uh, not it's like not Tarantino where you, you're just listening in on a conversation. It was very much bang, 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 by the numbers, greatest hits. The only other thing I'll say is I didn't think he got his ending right because if you look at Lock, Stock and Snatch, everything ties up neatly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't in this and he says, well, you know, you have to come back for the sequel as he's selling it to Miramax. Oh, the irony. <laughs> um, so... Other than that, yeah, I thought it was okay. Okay, so the next couple are just Darren and I. Let's start with Bombshell. The true story of Fox News and lead female anchors Megyn Kelly, Charlize Theron, and Gretchen Carlson, Nicole Kidman, who take on the powerful Roger Ailes, John Lithgow, on charges of sexual harassment. Darren, is it too soon after the events for the full story to be told? I think it's quite timely, to be honest. I've got to say, I was waiting for this film for ages because I love this sort of movie in the style of like film like The, the Big Short, where it basically takes real events and gives them a really entertaining spin to them. And, and breaks down the fourth wall as well, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. And does it in a sort of almost like a bullet point thing so that you, you, you entertain, so you, you're getting like a, a complex storyline that we sort of like, you know, entertaining it and laughs as well. Also, I've been waiting for years for someone to do something that gave Fox News a right good kick in. Managed to get myself hooked on Fox News and it used to be shown on Sky and it used to sort of just get wound up by all the different presenter personalities and the bias and everything. I thought this was a, a really good film it got you really angry about how this sort of like this toxic culture was was allowed to go on for so long for me it really explained how such abuses go on with people like you know turning a blind eye with people silences and stuff and also people scared to speak out and everything the performances really took it on well, one thing that i will say as well i was looking at this 
film for ages, trying to see Charlize Theron in there. I, I, I was going to say exactly the same thing. She looks so much like Megan Kelly. I couldn't see Charlie's face. You, you could with, with the voice of, and things and thing, but I, I for the life of me, I, I, I thought I thought that was you know excellent. But I, yeah, I, I absolutely sort of love this film. I didn't really know much about what had actually gone on behind the scenes. I didn't really I didn't know know the whole story. But I, I just thought this was absolutely fabulous. I've seen some interviews since then, and, and some of the women say that this film really it only scratches the surface. Oh, of, of what it was like. One of the performances that I, I really have, have to go for, because it was Margot Robbie's performance. She was basically the one who you saw being um, sexually harassed and, and, and abused and stuff. And I thought her performance was excellent. There's a, there's a moment where she sort of breaks down and she tells what, what's been going on and you really sort of feel for her. I thought this was absolutely excellent. I've got to agree. Going further on the Margot Robbie uh, sequence, there's a scene in this film that is one of the most uncomfortable moments you'll ever have in a cinema. It's really disturbing to watch. Everything about it is right. You've got Charles Randolph, who wrote the script, who wrote the script for The Big Short, so he's got a lot of that break into the fourth wall. I was going to say, when Darren was describing it, it sounded like a bit like The Big Short, where you get complicated yeah. things explained to But you've you. got director Jay Roach, who started off doing the Austin Powers and Meet the Fockers, and has moved over into things like Recount and Game Change, and Trumbo he did a couple of years yeah. ago. You've got a level of humour that comes in, because... This is an important story, and it's a really important story about sexual harassment. However, the people it's happening to are not nice people. Megyn Kelly famously got into trouble on Fox News for saying both Jesus Christ and Santa Claus are white. <laughs> She's since been fired by NBC for um, saying to people it's all right to black up to go out in character on Halloween. Oh, yeah, they're, wow. they're not nice people. But yet what happened to them didn't deserve to happen to them. And I think it is tremendous. It's fast-paced, insightful. I got angry with it. I got more emotion out of this than 20 1917s. So, uh, you know. You watched 1917, 20 Yeah, I couldn't believe it, but how bad it was the first 19. Oh. This to me, I'm with Darren. I waited a long time for this film. I'm really disappointed it hasn't found its home in the box office. It's the first great film of the year for me. Well, it's right in your wheelhouse, isn't it? it? Is. It's, a, yes. it's political, it's Fox News, it's right-wing nutcases. It's, yeah. Yeah, I relate to them. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, And with that, let's move to uh, an, Another interesting film. Right, Cats. <laughs> there you go. That's your Cats introduction. <laughs> Perhaps the most critically panned film of last year, a musical based on the Andrew Lloyd Webber stage play, which set T.S. Eliot's poetry collection, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. There was no way I was going to see this. So glad to see Jeff and Darren took one for the team by going to watch it. Jeff, is it as bad as the critics have been saying, or worse? I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, it's the stage show, right? If you've seen the stage show, you go see the film... It's the stage show with animatronic cats, essentially. You know, they're, they're, they're CGI'd up to the furball, essentially. <laughs> um, anything sexual is taken off and then replaced by fur. That doesn't have a plot, although I have read an interesting story on this that said if you look at it, they're in, they're in cat purgatory and only one can leave, it actually makes sense of the whole thing. 
which is why does the criminal cat, McCavity, wants to leave. Because otherwise, he's set for life there. He's got everything he wants. So I can see why it's been done. You've got films like The Magnificent Showman, which have taken everybody by storm by being a musical. Yeah. This has moments that are really good. I like the song. I took my wife to it. She quite enjoyed it. It is bizarre. And Darren, <laughs> I'll let Darren talk about the mice and the cockroaches in a minute, which is bizarre in the extreme. Jennifer Hudson's performance of Memories is magical. Idris Elba's in it. Taylor Swift is quite good. Gloss over Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, and particularly Ray Winston singing. It's something I could do without. <laughs> if you like the stage show... I think you'll like the film. If you didn't like the stage show and looking for something with a plot to go with your musical, you're stuffed. Darren, what do you think? I have to say, I kind of feel sorry for the filmmakers. You can tell this film, even though it's being panned, they went into this wanting to make a really spectacular movie that you'd not seen before, something true to the spirit of Cat. They didn't half-ass it. They really wanted to make something like incredible. And it just comes across as looking so weird. You know, the, the, <laughs> when it first starts, I thought, oh, this looks quite good. The set looks good. The background looks good. You know, the costume looks good. But then they start to move around a lot more. And there's bits where they're like, where the cats are walking along and the faces just look unnatural. It looks really unnerving. And there's just, and like, the bits where they are sort of like, you know, naked and pawing themselves and things like this. Like, the bit where Rebel Wilson, where she's sort of like stretching out. And, and it just looks really, really weird and unsettling. Can I can I just add at that point, Darren? Their faces look more realistic than those in The Irishman. Oh. <laughs> anyway, carry on. There's some moments that I basically just I just thought were really haunting. There was a bit where the load of mice and they've put children's faces onto the mice, singing and all looking scared. And then there's another one with a load of cockroaches and they've got all like human faces on and Rebel Wilson starts eating them. And it's just weird. It's just really <laughs> unsettling. And Jane Judy Gench, yeah. she does this thing where she, st- she, she looks into the camera and starts doing this singing monologue about how a cat is not a dog. And it's so long and she's staring into the camera and I kind of found myself having to like look away because it was freaking me out. <laughs> it, it's just the, the whole thing about it. I mean, there, there are some good good spots because obviously some of the songs are great. You know, Mem- Memories is absolutely awesome song uh, and that was a wonderful moment. I, I liked what they did with Magical Mr. Mistopolis. They changed that around and I, and I liked that. The film ends abruptly as well. It just kind of, there's just a scene where you're just looking at like a hot air balloon and it just like, Finishes dead. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, the, the balloon goes into this other dimension. If you take this thing about the cat they selected ascends to another life, I, I thought it was a perfectly fine ending. I, I don't think I'm ever going to get over seeing uh, Ray Winston's face on a cat. It's little things like that. <laughs> I think I just kind of just stick with it sounds like the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> let's let's spade this one and move on. <laughs> Our next review is Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker, Stroke: The Fall of Modern Cinema, <laughs> and the death are, of my childhood. Yeah, we are joined in this review by Mr. Phil Foster who has particular views on Star Wars. 
which we are all interested in, and I'm sure you'll be interested in by the time the end of this discussion. Now, I would add to anybody listening, this is going to be spoiler heavy. And if you haven't seen the film yet, you are very lucky. (laughs) Uh, But we are going to be mentioning key plot points. So, Star Wars, Rise of the Skywalker. As our guest, Phil, what do you think? Hi, everyone, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, Phil, hi. <laughs> I'm, right. yeah, I'm going to be diplomatic. I've seen it twice. The second time actually was probably worse than the first time around because I was thinking probably a bit too much. Two sort of arguments. So first argument was, is it a good adventure film just on its own, ignoring everything else, versus is it a good sequel, a good trilogy ender, a good saga ender? Can you live with the plot holes versus can you live with the retcons? I'll go into that. So is it a good adventure film? I think, yeah, it's fine. As a sequel and part of that trilogy, I think it is awful. I think they made some really bad choices. And I think a lot of that is the fault of Disney not deciding what they wanted to do all the way back at the beginning. They just made three films separately. In terms of the, the plot holes versus retcons, what I mean there is, is, do you know what? I can live with the fact that the Emperor apparently survived going down that exhaust port, the Death Star blowing up, and then somehow got taken to another planet, which apparently you can only get to with two wayfinders, neither of which are on that planet. And, yep. then, and, and then he built a fleet, and then how did he build that fleet, and who's piloting those split and where did all those people that's a plot hole that I can kind of you know no, right, it's a, you're making it sound whatever. bollocks already Phil but carry on right versus the stuff that I really disliked bear in mind I just said I could get past what I just said the bit I really don't like is the retcons of The Last Jedi I guess that depends on how much you like The Last Jedi mm-hmm. but I'll put it out there that I think it was the best film of this trilogy and Probably in my top five Star Wars films, probably even top three, four Star Wars films. I wrote a list of all the things that they did that really annoyed me, so I'm just going to tell you what they are. Everyone complained that Snoke didn't have an origin story, so tick, they did that. Lots of people complained about Rose, so put her back in a box, she's not allowed to do anything. Everyone complained, <laughs> everyone complained that Ray didn't do any training, so here you go, there's Ray doing some training. Everyone got upset that Luke threw his lightsaber away. So he matter-of-factly says, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. Everyone said, oh, Ray, your parents aren't important. That's not allowed, so now they are important. Poe, you spent the whole of the last film learning how to be a leader and not just going out and blowing shit up. Well, we're not going to bother with any of that. Go back to exactly how we were. And when you say everyone, you mean all the fanboys? the vocal internet crowd who got upset with all that stuff. That's all the stuff that I really disliked is that actually it doesn't matter that people didn't like The Last Jedi, whether that's 90% of the people or 10% of the people, whatever it is. You have to make the film based on the first two films because it's a trilogy closer. Then kind of rewrite it. What's the point in that? And, And that kind of goes back to the I guess the first part of the question, which is, it's an okay adventure film. If you take it as a whole, they really, really mucked that up. That essentially is because they went, JJ, you go and write number seven. Oh, that did really well, but people didn't like that it was a bit similar retread. 
So, um, Ryan, you write number eight. Try not to be a bit of a retread because they didn't like that. And then he did something quite a bit different and everyone went mental or a percentage of noisy people went mental. And then they went, Colin, can you write that ninth film? And Colin went, mm, I don't think I can, actually. I'm just going to go and do Jurassic World. He'd already started it and found out when he finished his first draft of the script that key people he had for his film had been killed in Last Jedi. I read that he specifically asked Ryan Johnson to leave Nopalive at the least. But this is all complete nonsense because that's not how you build a trilogy. I'm sorry. You sit in a room before you start the first one and you say, these are the key points of the trilogy. What's the ending of the What's third the film? What's the third film? And how do we get there? <laughs> you don't go, oh, we'll write the first bit and then we'll get another guy to come in and, and just do another one and not tell anybody what he's doing. And then a third guy to come in and go, oh, I didn't like that. So I'm going to, no. No, it's just <laughs> wrong from the outset. Yeah, this is a company yeah. that aimed at release dates over scripts. Exactly. And the other thing is by 2018, they'd made back their $4 billion that they'd spent buying Star Wars. So everything should have just chilled out and they should have taken their time and not focused on the release dates. Actually, let's get this right. It was a shambles. I've got a lot to say about this movie because as far as I'm concerned, I'm finished with Star Wars now. That's just com it completely no. ruined, <laughs> ruined my childhood. Neil, you've been fairly quiet, so like Darth Sidious, we'll allow you to get to the mic and say what you've got to say on it. The second one, Last Jedi, I thought was quite imaginative and then I, I couldn't believe that people who seemed to think that they owned Star Wars and everything about Star Wars could complain that yeah. actually the people, the Jedi or whatever, were, weren't actually doing very much and it was down to the people who had to sweep up the kid at the end to go and fix everything. And then they come up with this bloody film that, just goes, no, 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 we, we made a mistake. We're going to do exactly what we did before yeah. and in a way of sort of placating everybody and actually failed miserably. Yeah. Serves them right. Yeah. I have some nice things to say about this film. I'll, I'll add them at some point, I promise. Um, the, <laughs> the music was all right, Paul. <laughs> I thought episode seven was a really great, fun adventure story and a really great trilogy starter. Yeah. I thought yep. episode eight was brilliant, went in new directions, was brave, bold. I think Rogue One is one of the best Star Wars films that there is. Solo was okay. Yep. It was fine. Yep. And obviously that had its problems, probably very similar to what we're talking about now. And that, you know, they hired a couple of directors who went and did their thing and they went, no, 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 we'll need to rein you back in. And then obviously got themselves into all sorts of bother. But on that note, you know, they've already fired slash creative difference. Josh Trank, Colin Trevorrow, Lord and Miller. I'm pretty confident that at some point in the next couple of months, they'll say that Ryan Johnson's trilogy that they said they were going to give him is dead. Because they can't completely write off everything he did in Last Jedi for episode nine and then and then hand them the reins to a trilogy, can't they? I think the problem you've got here is the interference of people like Kathleen Kennedy 
and Lawrence Kasdan. But Kathleen Kennedy, everybody slagging her off. She's an amazing woman. She's, well, she's done not amazing doing good here, is she? I mean, she's not let's do- look at what's been interfered. We don't know if Force Awakens and Last Jedi were interfered with before they were released. We do know that Rogue One was, Solo oh, was, and, Solo and, this, and this one was. Yeah. Clearly, they're not the best people to make these sort of decisions. They lucked it the first time with Rogue One, and I don't agree with Phil. I, I think Rogue One is very messy to start off with before it settles down. I, I don't think it's one of the best. But to be honest, I think Phantom Menace is better than anything we've had in, since Disney took right, it over. Let's not go there. Let's that's just, there, that's yeah. just Jeff yeah. being Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let's all just agree we don't agree with Jeff. <laughs> being serious for a moment, and I don't do this often, but, but you know, you go back to the... Episodes one, two, and three. And I know people give it a lot of pro- There's a lot of problems with it. I accept there's a lot of problems with it. The thing is, it is one story. Yep. Yes. It had one person behind it who understood what he was yep. doing. He couldn't get all his words down on paper. But this was committee. And everything, you know, as Phil said, they brought these people in. The moment they showed any inspiration, binned them. And I do agree with Phil that at some point soon, Johnson's trilogy will suddenly disappear. So what about performances then, Phil? The best bit about the film, is there's two kind of things I really love about the film. The best thing about this new trilogy for me, the whole way through, has been Kylo Ren. He's easily one of the best villains. Their story in this third film, whilst a little bit muddled, their relationship and that sort of whole grey area of good and bad, I thought was really, really good. And Adam Driver's little shrug, as he suddenly pulls a lightsaber from behind his back. Genius. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, apparently an internet craze right now, trying to copy that. Um, the other bit, that, and for me, the absolute best bit in the entire film, and I suspect probably would never have been there if Carrie Fisher hadn't have died, because I doubt Harrison Ford would have returned, is the Harrison Ford moment with Adam Driver when he can't quite manage to say, I love you, and Harrison Ford says, I know, obviously echoes of Empire. And I just thought it was spot on. And that, for me, was the greatest bit in the whole film with Adam Driver, who's probably the best uh, actor in the whole trilogy. If Poe had had a decent role in this third film, he might have challenged him. Let's be fair, if you've got any ethnicity about you, you're finished in Star Wars. Disney do not want people of colour, uh, except to pay money to go watch their films. They certainly don't want them in it acting because you just look at the transition between this and Last Jedi. Yeah, you know, all those char- all those great characters yeah. and characterizations are lost. Can I can I talk about Finn? Can I just talk about Finn because mm. I am so cross about. Uh, Finn's story. I, I loved Finn's story arc. He, for me, was something different in the Star Wars universe. I'd seen Kylo Ren before. That was Darth Vader. I'd seen the young upcoming Jedi that Rey was because that was Luke. I'd seen a hard-nosed super fighter pilot before because that was Harrison Ford. But Finn was something different. I really loved his character. And I thought in The Last Jedi, I thought, oh, this is really happening. He's re- Something's really going on here. He was a stormtrooper who'd broken free from the First Order. He was brave and smart. And with Ray and Poe, he'd found a family. I was so excited to see what would happen to him in Rise of the Skywalker. And they immediately, the first thing they do is they take away his uniqueness. Oh, here's this girl, Janna. 
she was uh, the head even, of a they group. They even screwed that up as well because, of course, the whole thing is yeah. she is Lando Calrissian's yeah. long-lost daughter. So there's Finn's fantastic, interesting story thrown away. And then I thought he was going to say, when he, they, everybody says, oh, he was going to say, I love you, Ray. I thought he was going to say, I can feel the force. I can feel the force. I'm force sensitive. But he never gets to say that. And he, they he just... never says anything at all. That is a completely pointless plot thread. Oh, I've got something to tell you, but I'm never actually going to yeah. answer it for the whole yeah. film. Yeah. And really, ja- this girl, Jana, just drove me mad because she'd taken the best part of Finn away and her and her stupid space horse, they could have been blown up <laughs> on the deck of that Star Destroyer and I wouldn't have cared a moment because I had zero emotional resonance with her. I tell, Oh, God, I hate this movie. I really hate this. <laughs> okay, you, well, is that coming through, everybody? Yeah, yeah. If it, I, it it's seemed, okay, as you know, if you ignore all the other films, it's okay. Really, Phil? You, really? No, but seriously, I, I'm, I'm trying to inject some positivity. If, if <laughs> you kind of, if you ignore the other eight films and say this is like a, a blockbuster adventure movie, and you just couldn't know anything about Star Wars, it's all right. It's quite well put together. There's some decent set pieces in it. It's just not a coherent story. That's all I'm saying. It isn't coherent. I think that that's right. Okay, that's Graham's gone red in the face. I'm worried he could have a stroke. So let's sum it up then. Let's go round, Neil. Disappointed. Graham. Daisy Ridley, Adam Driver were great. Everybody else was shockingly bad. The scriptwriters ought to be taken out and shot. And J.J. Abrams never let him near anything again. He messed up Lost. He messed up Star Trek. This is two science fiction franchises that he's killed, as far as I'm concerned. So he's he's public enemy number one in my house. For me, I've got to agree with Neil. I think Neil's were disappointing. Absolutely I'm, true. I was very disappointed. Yeah, I think disappointing is does sum it up. And I think they really should have got in a room right at the beginning and said, here's our milestones and this is where we're going to be. I would rather think of The Last Jedi as the, the final film. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so many plot holes on it. Has anybody seen The Mandalorian? I've seen four four episodes of it when I was in America. I've only seen one. And what's the view on that? It seemed, seemed pretty good. I thought okay. it was great. It is... So maybe, yeah, there is hope. A new uh, hope. Oh, dear. Oh. 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 <laughs> I thought that they'd said that they're going to get Kevin Feige involved in whatever would be the next Star Wars film. Yeah, I, I, I definitely well. need to do that. And they're going to do Taita Waititi's got a Star Wars treatment he's working with Disney on, so for a single film. So that sounds good. Jojo Hope. Jojo Hope. Dear old Lord. I can see it now. You've got a kid whose imaginary friend is Darth Vader. Fantastic. <laughs> it works. It works. It works. It works. Okay, guys, uh, we're all disappointed. I, I think we'll better draw close to it and go to our next review. Thank you. <laughs> Reviews by two of the team. The film, The Two Popes, reviewed by Graham and Neil. And just to be otherwise, I watched it just before the show. This is a highly acclaimed Netflix drama, which has had a limited cinema release, based on a supposed meeting between the conservative Pope Benedict XVI and soon-to-be Pope Francis as they discuss the future of the Catholic Church. Neil, this one sounds a heavy drama, even if it has two wonderful Welsh actors. 
<laughs> no, it's not that heavy. Um, yes, they're dealing at the top of the Catholic Church, but this is a story about two people on opposite sides of many centuries-old dogma. One, a working priest who likes people, and people like him. He's a realist and a man trying to reconcile the aforementioned dogma with the realities of 21st century living, particularly celibacy in light of, as ably covered in the film Spotlight, paedophile priests. The other is an embattled Pope whose elevation to the top job was contentious, to say the least, as he's a stickler for the old ways. The Cardinals voted to stay as is. Both Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price are excellent as the two cardinals slowly edging around each other, searching for what to say but not revealing too much, negotiating their positions, as it were. When Hopkins starts to reveal his hand, Price starts getting really quite nervous. It's a very good watch, if only to see two great actors playing a very complicated game where neither knows the rules. It's brilliant. You missed out two great Welsh actors. Actually, they, to be honest, they were oh, at the top sake. of their game. They really play that very silent, intense roles. So and- there was only once where uh, Anthony Hopkins went full Captain Bly, <laughs> <you know. laughs> Mr. Christian. Yes. You know, he went. He had just that one point where he did it. The rest of the time, he was quite calm and restrained yeah, and. Yeah. Germanic. I love the way that Jonathan Price was just walking around chatting to people, whereas yes, um, very as much Anthony a man Hopkins of the people, had to be yeah. completely separate. He's the Pope, and Jonathan Price is chatting to people. Having lunch, instead of having a lunch in a specific place on in silence, he was going off into the middle of the park and sitting there. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. That's I did, I did well like done. that bit at the end when he was waving his scarf around at the football. <laughs> Big football fan, yeah. yes thought it was great it's very different i didn't know much about either ben or frank i thought the two actors worked wonderfully together i thought the the settings were fantastic i mean they had to replicate the sistine chapel you were telling me that yeah Yeah. didn't you think it copped out in a few places i'm sure it did but the point is it's about those two and it's about the dogma it's about the centuries old traditions of the catholic church but the thing is when it looked at Francis, it looked at him warts and all. It looked at everything that was going on with Argentina. But then when it goes on to Benedict and he starts giving his confession, the sound cuts out. So that the whole business of that paedophile priest that allegedly he allowed to go over to Mexico is not even discussed. So the balance was wrong. And, you know, if you want I to play that, that. I missed that because I thought, oh, right, he's putting that thing around his neck, which means he's going to go and listen to his confession now. And then it went quiet. And I thought, oh, that's artistic because it's private between those two and it'll never be revealed. And, it, you know, I see what you mean, Jeff. Yeah, you know, that's it's, the big scandal it, with him. But you know what is being revealed. In terms of acting, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was superb, yeah. Yeah, I liked it, I must admit. It's not something I'd normally watch because I've got no interest in it, but, yeah, it was very good. Graham, sum it up there, mate. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I thought I enjoyed it. Good story, well told, great pacing, excellent acting, and just gave me a bit more information about what these guys actually do, what's their day job. I, I enjoyed it, yes. Mm. Didn't find it that long, though. Yeah. I, it actually flew by for me. I yeah, thought it was great. Same for me. So let's move to Darren's dash. Over to you, Darren. First 
up is Seberg. This was a true story about an actress called Jean Seberg, who I never heard of. Uh, she was played by Kristen Stewart. And she was an actress in the 60s who got involved heavily with the civil rights movement, in particular the Black Panthers. Because of that, she, she became a target of the FBI, who started to place uh, bugs in her home and basically pretty much set about to destroy her. I thought the story was absolutely fascinating. And this it, it had a really good cast as well to go with it. Uh, Vince Vaughn was in it as an FBI agent. Um, Anthony Mackey was in it. Zazie Beach was in it. Uh, Cole Meany was in it as like the FBI chief. And I thought this was a, like a really interesting story about how the authorities at the time were basically working against the civil rights movement and using smear campaigns. It's not had great reviews, but I just um, was engaged by the story. I thought Kristen Stewart was really, really good in it. And uh, yeah, I have to say, I, um, I, I gave it a thumbs up. I think it's a really interesting movie. Next one is Marriage Story, the big Netflix film that's done a lot of good stuff with, with the Oscars. I wasn't really that looking forward to seeing this film. I had an impression that it was going to be a film that I might find to drag quite a lot, especially because I find that my, my attention span if I'm watching a film at home isn't the same as watching it when I'm sat in the cinema. But I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was engaging right from the start. It's uh, basically the story of um, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, who their marriage is basically falling apart. When the film opens, it starts straight away from them being separated. They try to have a civilised divorce, but unfortunately, once the lawyers get involved, that basically goes the way of the dodo. Trust me, there's no such thing, Darren. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I will say this, this film does put you off the idea of actually getting married or if you do get married, ever going through a divorce because it's absolutely harrowing. But yeah, I mean, Adam Driver is absolutely great in this. You actually see the, most of the story from his perspective because he's the one whose sort of life starts to fall apart because of it and he basically starts to lose contact, obviously with his wife, but also his relationship with his son. But Alan Alders is a surprise in this, and he's, he's really funny as, as, as this really inept lawyer who's basically out of his debt. Laura Dern is this really sleazy, ruthless lawyer, and, and there's, there's something that she says right at the end of the film that pretty much sums up her character and how um, lawyers see this sort of situation. I thought this film was absolutely amazing. It was funny in places. It, um, it never dragged it might be faint praise, but I think it's probably the the, uh, the best film that I've seen that was like a Netflix exclusive. Next yeah. one, a very different story, Little Women. Yeah, period dramas aren't really my favorite. I, I see a lot of them, but they're very hard to relate to in any sense because they're sort of from another era and everything. This one I absolutely found really enchanting, even though it's set sort of like in of a period. It has a very modern feel to it. You know, the, the issues which are on there about sort of sisterhood, about women's rights and sort of thing, oh, although the situations have changed a lot, but the common like frustrations that women have with the choices awarded to them, I thought this was absolutely wonderful. The highlight for me was uh, Floris Pugh, who every time she was on, on screen, she actually stole the scene. She was so charismatic. Her character was so funny. But there's a moment in when she's first introduced, there's a scene where they're cutting one of the girls' hair and they basically lop a load of it off. And they also to look at it absolutely terrified. And she just howls with laughter. And from that moment, you just know what her character is. I, I thought it was absolutely fabulous. But the thing that really impressed me as well is the conversations that they had, they felt like they were having really 
proper conversations. It was so realistic. But like at times, we were like it flowed so well, and at times we were almost like talking over each other, like like a proper conversation. I, I just thought it was great. I, I also absolutely loved it. I thought it was. Great. And I, I agree what you say about uh, Florence Pugh as, as Amy. I also thought Saoirse Ronin as Joe March was fabulous. Those two, plus Laura Dern as Marmee and Meryl Streep as the Tell It Like It Is Aunt March, mm. were just off the chart. The direction was fantastic. The, the thing that I liked as well is... Um, I like the clever ending where the film and the book merged effectively. It was just great, yeah. great, great film. And But let's get this back on track. <laughs> Richard Jewell, which is a film I am looking forward to seeing. So tell us about this one, Darren. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, this was another one where the, this, a story that I'd never um, heard of. It's, it's about a security guard who was working at the at a concert during the uh, Atlanta Olympics, who basically discovered a satchel bomb. And because of that, they were able to evacuate the area. And the bomb did go off. Two people got killed. But if he hadn't actually spotted it, a lot more would have got killed. So initially, he was basically praised as this hero. And then it got leaked that he was a, a person of interest with the FBI's in, investigation because he fitted the profile of a bombman because he was living at home with his mum because he'd had a background where he'd lost quite, he basically tried to get him to the police and failed. And he doesn't make any bones about that. It was a very socially awkward man. Because of this, he was, he was basically a suspect. The media turned the tide against him. The police had him as like their number one suspect. It's an absolutely fascinating story. It's basically directed by Clint Eastwood. You can tell that this is a story that he really, really wanted to, to tell. Paul Hauser was pretty much born for me to play this role because he himself comes across as this sort of like socially awkward. You know, most of the roles he plays are this socially awkward sort of like, you know, like loner type person. Again, it's a film that really basically sort of gets you quite angry with the authorities, with the media. Sam Rockwell's in it as well as the um, as his lawyer, and and he's absolutely brilliant. And it is it's, it's really funny as well. There's some really funny moments, and and because people probably haven't had a chance to see this, I won't reveal what they are. But there are some moments where his na- naivety in the investigation makes you laugh, but it's also it's. It does just to get you quite angry how basically people try to manipulate him. There's been some controversy about this film for because of the fact it's a Quint Eastwood movie and because he's known to having some right right wing you know viewpoints and stuff. But people sort of saying that this is like um, a Trump film because it's having a go at the authorities and having a go at the media, which I, I personally think is really really stretching that idea to be honest I, I just thought this was an absolutely fascinating story and just really interesting and, 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 one, and I think, I think, one I'm looking forward to so a lot of controversy looking forward to it one, one thing as well Kathy Bates as, as well is absolutely brilliant she she plays the um, Richard Jewell's mother she runs the whole gauntlet because she's, at first she's so proud that her son is finally getting like some sort of respect of people and then she has to go through the entire rigmarole of seeing people condemning him you just see her being torn apart as the film goes on. She's absolutely wonderful in it. So finally then, we've got Waves. I'm not going to say a lot about this movie. This is one of those stories that I think you really have to watch it for yourself and watch it unfold. The premise is that you've got a family 
who have a son who's going to be a, a rising star in the amateur wrestling circuit. He's, he's, he's on for a scholarship and everything. He's got a dad who is pushing him because he wants him to reach his potential. Stuff starts to happen to this family through this son. So the son go, goes through some problems with relationships, with school. But at some point, there's a tragedy that hits this family. And this film absolutely takes you through the entire gauntlet of emotions. It's a film that reminds me a lot mood-wise of Moonlight. That stuff, sort of narrative, it wasn't an easy film to watch because at times it's quite harrowing and upsetting. This is one that you really have to see, that you really have to immerse yourself in. It's all about sort of addiction, relationships, making mistakes. It's a film that the less you know about it, the, the better you'll enjoy it. Okay, so that's a good roundup this month. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, thanks, Sam. brilliant. Let's go into our films of the month. Okay, let's wrap up January with our Film of the Month selections. We've reviewed plenty of really good films this month, but none had the emotional impact for me of 1917. Yep, 1917 for me as well, although that selection in no way diminishes my love for Jojo Rabbit and Little Women. Well, for me, it's Bombshell, although I did consider Cats. Darren? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go for Jojo Rabbit, just because it was so good on so many different levels. It was uh, funny as well as sort of tragic. Well, I think it's been a great cinema month. Yep. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, guys. And that is the end of our review section. Thank you. Thank you. From the latest reviews, let's go see what is opening in UK cinemas over the next couple of months. We caught up with our old friend, Cineworld manager Steve Wright, for the latest. OK, Jeff, over to you. Hello from your at the Flicks team. You're in, well, I would say sunny Whitney. We're in Whitney anyway. So, Steve, welcome to the show again. Hello, how are we? Very well, thank you. Throughout January, it's been amazing. You've had films like 1917, Star Wars still continuing, and Little Women. They've been as huge for you as everywhere else? 1917's been the real big one, but uh, yeah, they've all performed really well. Star Wars still bringing in the punters that want to go and see it, but uh, 1917, we knew was going to be busy. Didn't realise how busy. It was insane. Little Women, Cats as well, is actually performing quite well for us over here. I was going to ask you about Cats, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much, I think, the only cinema where it's doing well over here. But essentially, it's the stage show, isn't it? I mean, this is what I don't understand with all the the vitriol that's been piled on this film. If you saw the stage show, you're seeing exactly the same thing in the cinema. You are. I think people just expected so much from it and it kind of lacked that impact when it came to the visuals it just looked a bit weird before we go on and talk about the fantastic slate of films you've got coming out let's just do a wrap-up on your children in need appeal how did it go it was incredible as a company we beat the previous year's total we did six just over six hundred thousand whitney as a cinema raised three thousand seven hundred oh wow which for a cinema that's only five screens is fantastic me personally i got just over the magical £500 mark on a personal level for the shark dive and 
shaving the beard off. We're already in the planning stages for this year's appeal. Looks like I may end up getting strapped to the wings of a plane this year, so watch this space. I just want to check you, the plane will be in the air when you do this? Uh, yes, yes. Because um, I'll happily do it if it's on the ground. Oh, yeah, that, that, that sounds quite easy, but no, <laughs> there it will be doing loop-the-loops and all kinds of crazy stuff, so... Yeah, watch this space and there'll be more details, I'm I'd sure, rather, when I meet with you guys later in the year. I'd rather face the shark, to be quite honest. At least you're in a cage. As we go through the year, what we can do to support you and get the message out there, we will certainly do that. Thank you. All, all for a great cause. So thank you. So, movies. We're now in the heart of awards season. All the noms are out there. The awards are just about to come. And I've got seven films which look like they could be there or thereabouts. Personal History of David Copperfield. So this one, Dev Patel, I really like the guy. I I liked him when he was in Skins, the TV show, years ago. Then he went on to obviously do Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, Slumdog Millionaire. I think this is certainly going to be one that will perform very well here in Whitney our older crowd would certainly flock in to see that one. I think the crowd you've got going to see Little Women are going to go for this as well. That's yeah, Absolutely. Of, yeah. uh, it's, we're trailering the hell out of it on Little Women and Cats, actually, as well, because we think that's sort of similar crowds. So that one's 24th. Now, it's an odd one. I haven't seen it. People who have seen it said they don't know what it's about, but it's just hypnotic all the way through. The Lighthouse. Again, I've not seen much on this one at all. Seems to have been quite quiet, and then all of a sudden it's built right up and everyone's suddenly buzzing about it. I don't know if a trailer's just dropped because I haven't seen any myself. We've not had any in cinemas. We haven't even had the posters in. But like the last sort of week, week and a half, all of a sudden it seems to have come from out of nowhere. It's interesting because it is based on a a true story about two... Welsh people. They went a bit loopy, apparently, which seems a bit far-fetched. So <laughs> moving, moving on. Now, one that's been quite controversial in America, but I don't think it'll have the same controversy over here. But again, looks good. Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell, yeah, a lot of controversy. And again, personally, I'm not convinced that it's going to perform that well for UK audiences. But I think because of sort of the hype that we've had around it all, out in America that people will kind of be a little bit intrigued we'll see with that one it's kind of a watch this space I definitely want to see it one that is definitely going to be uh, go go big and have a huge impact is A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood because we know people that saw it at the London Film Festival they couldn't speak when they come out they were so overawed we had uh, an unlimited screening of this a few weeks back and people coming out of it again they were just in some of them I think this looks like one of his best performances if I'm honest uh, since sort of Forrest Gump that kind of realm if it doesn't get awards nods then I quit I give up (laughs) with film I know nothing but I will definitely be making time to go and see that one and all of our Unlimited customers said it was phenomenal so really excited for that on the 31st of January yeah me too me too also another one, I, I believe, has been an unlimited screening. And again, I've heard really good word of mouth about this. Queen and Slim. Queen and Slim, yes. Not one for the Whitney audiences. The unlimited screening didn't do as well as we would have liked here. But everywhere else, it's done really, really, really well. 
Now, the last two I've got on my these are there for the awards ones, are both foreign language ones. Early Feb, we've got Parasite, which one of our contributors called the best film of last year. This one, it's got a lot of buzz around it, so much so we are having an unlimited screening on the 24th. This was never planned for an unlimited screening, and then all of a sudden the buzz came out of nowhere and we've managed to secure it. So 24th of January for that one. And the final one on my awards list before we go talking about films in, in general is another foreign language, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's not one I've heard of at all. And I think it could be because they're looking at potentially a Feb 28th release. They're looking to see how it does in the awards and give it, see if it gives it that boost. Inevitably, anything that wins awards or does very well in the awards season, it comes sort of a week or two after they've kind of all done the Oscars being the big one but not one that we've got down on our list at the moment. So, fingers crossed. And let's go back and have a, have a chat about the other not-so-lucky films or later releases that, that aren't up for nominations. Back at the end of January, we've got The Grudge. Not a reissue, but a remake, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a massive, massive fan of the Tartan Extreme stuff. I will always love the original sort of Japanese versions. I don't know with this. It's I feel like it's been done to death a little bit, even though it's only really been remade once and then obviously the sequels that came from that. If they take a different angle with it rather than remake it, reboot it a little bit, almost like they did with Ghostbusters and yeah. films like that. I'm intrigued by the casting of Andrea Riseborough not an actress you would normally associate with this no. sort of film. So hopefully she saw something in it that might translate. Maybe. It is a different casting. Like you say, they normally go with the sort of... I think the last remake was Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yes, oh, yeah. God. Yeah, same principle, haunted houses that follow you around. You'd love it, Neil. And <laughs> Hopefully, fingers crossed, they'll do something a little bit different with that and it will do okay. Yeah. It's been successful in the States, no reason, you know, with a horror film, not to translate over here. So next on my list, we've got the rhythm section. This comes in a week that's heavy for releases, 31st of January, same date as Beautiful Day in the ha Neighbourhood, Queen and Slim, Richard Jewell, The Lighthouse. It's going to be one of those that I think will only go into the bigger cinemas i wouldn't be surprised if maybe they delay it a little bit because i know there's a lot of people out there that want to go and see this and it stars blake lively doesn't it, it does and mrs jude, ryan reynolds yeah and jude law as well um, okay interesting cast I, I wonder if they might delay it slightly just because of everything else that comes yeah. out that week yeah. it, it's gonna be a crazy week if they end up releasing those five films all at the same time that, that's mad and the title doesn't sell it i think i think it could have got something a bit more snappy no you hear rhythm section and i just think it's about orchestra or something yeah which is a bit weird so then we go into february and the pace doesn't let off you steve you no you're gonna have a quiet february no i mean you know you've got feb the 7th you've got do Little Birds of Prey and Underwater all opening? Yeah, so Underwater is one that I think may not come to cinema here, but I want to focus on Birds of Prey first. I was worried after Suicide Squad how this would translate. It looks 
fantastic i really love the posters that we've just had go up they're so bright colorful in your face i think it is going to be fantastic it'll be one of those that you don't really need to think about too much you can go and watch her smash people's heads up and blow them off and like it's just going to be fantastic and she seems to be hot profit at the moment does margot robbie yeah, yeah. all around nice person i mean the only black mark you never put against her is apparently she's a fulham supporter but other than that <laughs> but then we move on swiftly to uh do little like you say 7th of feb this visually looks stunning it's cgi to a next level it's gonna be big it, we know it's gonna be big anything with robert downey jr in seems to do really well yeah i mean we've got a show coming up on remakes and talking about successful ones and why do they do it and my view has always been remake something that didn't work in the past and you can't get a bigger flop than the 1960s Dr. Doolittle, Rex Harrison talking to the animals. We are previewing it Saturday 1st and Sunday the 2nd of Feb, so... You see, you've got all those big films opening for that week, and you think, OK, we'll have a week off from new stuff now. But no, the next week you get something that appeals to two completely different audiences, Sonic the Hedgehog or Emma. This will either do ridiculously well or it will flop there is going to be no middle ground with sonic the hedgehog emma i think will be a slow burner it'll start off okay and it'll build and build and build again i i would expect what you get from the little women crowd is going to flock to this film absolutely yeah absolutely and like i say little women has been insanely busy for us so we're expecting things from that as well And then just when you think, oh, maybe I might get a break, it goes to the 21st of Feb and we've got Call of the Wild. It's got Harrison Ford in it. Um, And a CGI dog with a look at the trailers. Yeah, it's a bit odd in the trailers. I'm not sure if they're going to leave it like that or if that's just sort of like a rough cut they've got out. Because it's still a little way off. I think the casting of Harrison Ford as the grizzled old mountain man is quite good. Yeah, I think it's very good. To round off February, you've got some very interesting choices. You've got a film that we've covered in our movie news, Downhill, with Will Ferrell, which is a sort of comedy drama about a guy who runs away from an avalanche, leaves his family behind, and the avalanche doesn't hit, and he's got some facing up to do. I want to sort of finish, if I may, three what I think you've got big hitters for March and you start to lead in towards Easter. Hot cross bun, anybody? And let's start with a film you mentioned to me just before we started, Steve, Military Wives. This will be huge in Whitney, absolutely massive. Uh, Off the back of sort of 1917, previous films like Calendar Girls, it's got that kind of Calendar Girls vibe to it. So this is about the Military Wives Choir that was formed a few years back and kind of how that came about. Just looks like a bit of a feel-good kind of film. Like I say, very similar to Calendar Girls, Type yeah, finding your feet, finding your feet. Finding, oh yeah, fi- uh, that, that quite, kind that, of feel. That was good, yeah. I think it will do very well. Again, I think it will be one that will take a lot of people by surprise. However, it is going up against a huge Disney film called Onward. This is the latest Pixar. 
Yeah, I've seen the trailer where they, he's clearing the unicorns away from his bin, but in a suburbia setting. Yeah, it, it looks like exactly what you expect from Pixar. It's going to be good. You know it's going to be good. Just before, like you say, that sort of Easter time, I think this will run well into the Easter holidays and beyond. And, and then amazingly, we have a horror movie that Graham wants to see, A Quiet Place Part 2. Yes, I thought A Quiet Place was, it was kind of my film of the year. came from out of nowhere, it was all of a sudden the hype kind of built and as a concept, it's a film with no talking whatsoever and it was fantastic. It got a little bit crazy towards the end once you see the monsters in my opinion. I'm hoping they do the first one justice and they're not just money grabbing and i'm not sure i know you said there was two more there's one more on my list that goes up against a quiet place and we're going back to the other ends of the scale again trolls world tour hey it's high on neil's must see list of the year so yeah obviously after the success of the trolls movie with uh, anna kendrick and justin timberlake they're back again those annoying little fuzzy haired creatures it's going to do exactly what it says on the tin, exactly yeah. what we expect from it. It will do well with the kids. Hopefully they'll still have the few bits of adult humour in there as well. This is coming out the same week as A Quiet Place Part 2, which is the 20th of March. That is an incredible lineup. And next time we meet, we'll talk about Easter. And that also is going to be absolutely massive. We'll talk more about it next time, but our little rabbit friend might be coming back from a few years ago. Which, I don't know if you've seen the trailer, a lot of it is set in around Gloucester. But it isn't only films. You you don't only get all the buzz and the crowds coming in for those. Your one-day special lineup again, is very strong. Heavily, heavily packed beginning to the year. Normally it's just Royal Opera House stuff and the Met live. But on top of that, Bolshoi Ballets. We've put in musicals. So on the 4th of... February, we've got Kinky Boots the Musical coming. Uh, so that's a new kind of avenue for us to go down when it comes to the live events. Quite intrigued to see how that one does. We've got Porgy and Bess. That's got quite a lot of hype around it at the moment. Excellent. There's also a, a completely different avenue for live events that we're looking at on the 3rd of March repeating again on the 8th, which is the Riverdance 25th anniversary. Special to Graham's heart, he auditioned for it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, again, that one's going to be interesting. And then a big, big Bolshoi Ballet for 2020. I think it's the first time that this has been shown in cinemas, which is Romeo and Juliet. Oh, wow. Um, this is a massive, massive ballet. When's that one coming? So that one's the 29th of March for the that tickets one. on sale for that now? They should be on sale now, yeah. Um, I would say get them before they go then. Absolutely. Now, Valentine's Day, you've got something special on, I believe? Yes. So for all of our cinemas and fans of Patrick Swayze out there, no, it's not Dirty Dancing. We have the 30th anniversary reissue of Ghost. 30 years. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if this is going to be a sort of remaster into 4K. Possibly. Um, that's going to do huge things. It's a classic. Yeah. I mean, so many people have already seen the film and to be able to 
come back to the cinema and watch it on the big screen. But one of the joys of that film is Whoopi Goldberg's performance, which is hilarious. Yeah, it, I, in my opinion, it's one of her best ever performances yeah. in that film, uh, outside of Sister Act. It's going to be great to see it on the big screen again. I'm hoping maybe they'll do a remaster on it, but it will be digital regardless. Yeah, I think that'll do really good things. Uh, 6.30 on Valentine's Day. I look forward to that. Now, one thing I've noticed going through the listings is you have a number of autism-friendly showings of films, which sound absolutely fantastic and you know, really good of Cineworld to, to take that policy on board. What exactly does that mean what does it entail and what films do you show there so all of our cinemas have now taken this on it started off as kind of a trial at a few and they've all taken them on so it's the first sunday of every month tends to be a 12a or lower film mainly sort of more kids films than anything else the way it works is obviously we recognize that a lot of our customers have different needs and those with autism have very specific needs so what we do is we play the film as is, as normal. We do away with the allocated seating so that they can pick their own seats. We keep the house lights, so the lights on the side, we keep those at like a half level so that there's more light in there because, again, people with autism can be affected by sort of lights and sounds. We play the sound at a reduced level for that reason. We create a quiet place so that if they need to leave the screen for any reason they can go and sit in comfort rather than being out in our foyers which are quite large and can be full of people so we'll have a separate place where we'll have maybe like a little sofa set up so they can go and sit there take five and then return back to the screening still charge at the same price anyone can go to the autism friendly screenings it, you don't have to have autism to go to them but obviously we we do it specifically for that reason and make these adjustments for those customers it's something that Cineworld's very passionate about is catering for all of our customers we're looking at the moment and some of our cinemas already do this mother and baby screenings as well Oh, excellent. Fully support that. What films have gone down well in the screenings? So it tends to be, like I say, the kids' films. Uh, Lion King did very well, autism-friendly screening. We had Toy Story 4, so that did very well. And I know that we've got one coming up, Spies in Disguise, so we expect this one to do quite well as well, probably better than it did on general release, to be fair. One thing that we've looked at off the back of the popularity of the autism friendly screenings um particularly here in whitney it's done very well for the autism friendly autism friendly's first sunday of every month on the first monday of every month we do dementia friendly screenings as well so these are for people that suffer with dementia and they tend to be older classics that we bring back or films that have performed very well and so cats will undoubtedly be one that's coming up soon for us we had aeronauts and it tends to be that sort of older generation mm. film 1917 we're looking at trying to get that one in as well because it will do very well and for all sunny world cinemas in whatever community they're in the amount of work they do whether it's children in need whether it's these special screenings you know we always like to give a shout out to them it's really good yeah we, we will always keep doing it and it's close to all of our hearts and you know, it doesn't just go national level. Um, we look at charities locally as well that we can support and we'll keep doing it for a long time to come. Excellent. Most organisations, when they start the year, 
particularly after a crazy Christmas and New Year period, have that slow build in. Mm. What we've spoken about for this show is far from it with you. And I, I think it's not going to let up for the whole year, to be honest. It's, I looked last year at the slate for 2020 and I was like, there's not really that many big hitters, blockbuster films out there. And then we got the official 2020 release calendar and I've looked and gone, that's going to do well. That's going to do, oh, 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 oh. And I'm trying to factor in when to take time off for annual leave. And it doesn't really matter which week I take off. There's going to be a film out that's going to be busy. I think as long as I avoid April, I'll be fine. But we'll talk more about that next time. (laughs) Yes, yeah, I look forward to that. Have a great time. And probably one of the last people to say to you, Happy New Year to you. (laughs) And to you guys. And uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Some fantastic films there. Although we must find out when the next Mel Gibson film is opening. I think that just about wraps it up for this month. I didn't write that, did I? (laughs) Somebody has snuck in and rewrote my end of Steve Wright section. I wonder who that could possibly Uh, be. What a bastard. What a bastard, yeah, exactly. It's either Jeff or me, and I don't know. I can't remember doing it. Yeah. As for next month, we'll give our big reveal as to the delights that are coming as part of the Stride Film Festival. One of our best ever interviews as we talked to art director Kirk Doman about some of the big budget movies he's worked on. And another political take on the Rambo films. Plus plenty of reviews and the return of Deck with his streaming picks for our end of month show. So gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another at the flicks is in the can. Off to watch a 79-year-old starship captain and his dog save the galaxy (laughs) again. Is that William Shatner? (laughs) He's 178, isn't he? Neil, what's that by your feet? Have you brought your Brexit kit ready with you for the end of the month? I see there's a Union Jack in there, model of the Big Ben, and a copy of The Art of the Deal. Nice one. (laughs) We're in your house, Jeff. And I can promise you they were here when I got here. (laughs) I suspect they might be yours. You're a closet Brexiteer, aren't you? (laughs) No, they're my wife's. (laughs) There's something in the closet anyway. Right. And to everyone else, thanks thanks for for listening listening and and goodbye. goodbye. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.